Hello Life Changes Church, welcome to our YouTube channel. We have got an amazing word prepared for you, so why don't you take out your notebook and your pen as we get ready to listen to what God has for us. So good to be in church tonight. Um, we've got two kids, Fiona, one uh, boy named Benji who's going on four, Olivia who's six, and our privilege um, as a mum and dad is we've got this new ru- uh, family routine, family rhythm. At the end of every evening, the four of us get into bed and uh, I read a Bible story to them and uh, try and keep their, their attention by doing the different voices and trying to keep as best I can a four and a six-year-old's attention. And then we finish the evening. It comes to a crescendo where we go around the, the, around the room there and we all say a brief prayer. Now, Olivia, our six-year-old, she is a revivalist at heart, guys. She's got the word. She just, she is unbelievable. It's a, it's a sight to behold. She starts to decree and declare. She is, uh, she is opening the floodgates of heaven. We are, Fiona's weeping. She's responding to the altar call. It's just incredible. I'm just like, this feels like the angels are with us, but uh, no joke. She's literally, she's, just, she's quoting scripture. She's thanking God for his character. It's just this beautiful thing. I'm like, so proud of my girl. And then Benji, it's your turn. Benji looks at us, he takes out his dummy, throws it aside. And Benji looks at us and he's wide-eyed and he says two things. He says, thank you for your cross. He says, uh, every night, thank you for your blood. And then he looks around, he knows that he's got to skim the depths of his theology right there. And Benji starts to then wax lyrical, making up words, making up suggestions. He, he mocks his parents in the prayers. True story. I will, if you want to know the, the agenda, you can talk to me afterwards. But he, he brings up and he goes, and we are so not entertained any longer. This has happened night after night, people. So if you're not like, Benji, come on. Come on, Benji. But Olivia will start to giggle. And he knows that. He just plays to the crowd. You know, the one person giggling. And he's going waxing lyrical. And I start to despair because I'm concerned about my son's salvation, people. Okay, okay. But... <laughs> But the reality is, as I start to do this, I'm going, oh, what a job it is to disciple these little children and, how, and all the eternal truths. How are we going to get those into this, this little heart and help them understand who God is? There's so much to talk about and the breadth and length of Scripture and the, the whole counsel of God. I've got to get into these little people. What a, what a job. What a joy. What a delight. But I despair because I'm going, all he seems to know is two things. Thank you for your cross. Thank you for your blood. And I often think about church when, and your lives and my life, and I go, sheesh. What, what a privilege to be able to preach and with a team and different people to preach and minister every week. But I often go, 30 minutes is not enough. I wish we had hours and days where we could plumb the depths of Scripture and we can start to navigate our way through the Old Testament and navigate our way through the, the highs and lows of Scripture. And there's so many, the doctrines I love to put deposit deep in our hearts. And often I, I go, but, but, but actually sometimes I feel like we're just scratching the surface and all we've got is thank you for the cross, thank you for your blood. But I want to tell you tonight that actually if, if I could preach one thing, and one thing only, it would be that. Thank you for your cross. Thank you for your blood. Because Billy Graham once said, the great evangelist said, if I had to do life over again, I would preach nothing else but the blood of Jesus Christ. And I want to preach on one verse of scripture tonight, and one verse only, place it deep in our hearts as a treasure that will serve us as a people. And it's found in Ephesians 1 verse 7. It says this, in him. And when it says in him, it's saying in Christ. In Christ, we have redemption the forgiveness of sins through his blood. I love the fact that it doesn't say uh, in, in works or through our striving or in our power or in our words or in our church attendance or in our ability to navigate life. No, it says in him and through his blood that we have redemption. We've been brought back from the kingdom of darkness, placed into the kingdom of the sun, uh, in, the, in the kingdom of light, and it's through his blood alone. So I want to tell us tonight that the blood of Jesus is everything. 
The blood of Jesus changes everything. The blood of Jesus always has been, always will be. It is the parentheses of the whole Bible. If you want to know the bookends of Scripture, 1 Peter tells us that Christ was crucified before the foundation of the earth. So before even Genesis 1, we talk about the creation of the world. The Bible tells us that before that, Jesus was crucified. Yes, he became a man, and in times, the time-space continuum, AD 30, he was crucified before their very eyes in human history, yes. But the Bible tells us that it was in God's heart all along to crucify Jesus and lift him up as a lamb that was slain. It was not a reaction to your sin. It wasn't uh, like, oh, what, what do I do with this? How do we sort out the sin problem? Uh, let's see in Jesus. No, no, it was always in God's heart that the lamb would be slain for the salvation of the world. That is the one side of the story, and on the very end, all of eternity will be wrapped up when we'll worship the Lamb of God and the wedding supper of the Lamb, and we'll, we'll, they'll say, we'll overcome by the word of our testimony and the blood of the Lamb. The parentheses of the Bible with the cross standing right in the middle, inviting the world to come, has got the Lamb that was slain before the creation of the world, the Lamb that will overcome at the end, and all the way through, every single page of the Bible, all the way through, whether it's overtly or through a veil dimly lit, the blood is speaking and calling, saying, the blood is everything. And I want to put that deep in our hearts. So why don't we pray briefly. Father, I thank you for this evening. As we gather as your people, not just to buy time, not just to do religious jargon, not just to tick off a list. I thank you, Jesus, that we are here tonight to engage with eternity, to engage with eternal principles, the blood of Jesus that speaks a better word, the blood of Jesus that redeems us, restores us, forgives us, enables us to come in with boldness and confidence into the very throne room of God. So I thank you for your blood, the earth-shattering, sin-destroying, God-glorifying blood of Jesus that is powerful and will work in our lives here and now tonight. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. I wanna help us, if it's all right, if I can just pour out my heart with my theology of the blood of Jesus and how I read scripture, that, that we find the first narrative that I wanna draw our attention to in Genesis 22. Can you say Genesis 22? Genesis 22, we find this narrative where uh, God is dealing with a man named Abraham, and he's promised Abraham and his wife that they will have a son, and actually not just one son, that they'll have many children, and that their seed will bless the nations of the world. They'll have, uh, they'll have children as many as the stars in the sky and sand on the seashore, and this promise has come to him, but they have not seen it come to pass. And the Bible goes on to tell us they, they got to an age where they were as good as dead. They were both pressing a hundred. They're ready for the big celebration, but they're no children. But God is true to his word, and the promise is fulfilled, and Isaac is born, the son of promise. The son of promise is given to Abraham, and this moment that they have the fulfillment of their promise, they're like, yes, this is our future. This is the promise of God that's going to happen. We thank you, God, that you are, um, you are not a man that you should lie, that you held true to your promise. Despite the evidence, you have come through. And then God follows that up a little while later, saying, Abraham, I want you to take your son, your only son, Yep, the, the son Isaac that I promised you. And I want you to go to the mountain that I'll show you. And I want you to send that mountain. And on the top of the mountain, I want you to sacrifice your son Isaac to me. Lay him on the altar and sacrifice him. This is a really hard instruction to try and navigate. God, what are you trying to say here? And I try to deal with all these things and we can go down every avenue. But actually at the very heart of it, God is saying to Abraham, do you trust me? And Abraham says, yes, Lord, and he takes Isaac up, and the whole way Isaac's saying, Dad, where's the sacrifice? Where, what's going to happen? And, and Abraham just keeps saying, the Lord will provide. 
The Lord will provide. But knowing in the back of mind, this is, gonna, this is the provision. The promise is the provision that I'm going to sacrifice to God. And you eventually get to the point, the whole, the crux of the story, lays his son on the altar, ties him down there, and he's about to plunge the knife into the heart of his boy, the promise, and in, and in the in blind trust of God. But at just that moment, the voice of God resounds and says, Abraham, stop. Thank God Abraham learned to hear the voice of God. And as he hears stop, the voice of God continues and said, take your boy off the altar because in the thicket I provided a lamb, a ram, caught there for to be the, take the place of Isaac. And in that moment, we see the first explicit di- demonstration of the doctrine of substitution where one man gets set free and a lamb takes his place. And it's this incredible moment because it's also foreshadowing another narrative of a father who would not spare his only son and sacrifice him on a mountain years to come. God and his son, Jesus Christ. But this incredible moment, as we see in this story, we see God has always been about the blood. He's always been about the lamb. And in that moment, we see one man get set free at the expense of one lamb. Pop that one in your, in your, in your, in your brain there for a moment. And let's move on. Flip a whole book on. Exodus chapter 12. Say Exodus 12. Exodus 12 is the, the highlight of this narrative of the people of Israel. They've been gone down into, into Egypt where they've been enslaved for 430 years. They've been enslaved and lost their identity as a people. And as they are there, eventually a deliverer comes, Moses. And Moses comes to Pharaoh and he says, let my people go. And big Pharaoh says, no. So God starts to act in, a, in an incredible power and sends the plague after plague. It's as Queen would say, thunderbolts and lightning, very, very frightening. It's very real. It is plague after plague. It's undeniably God at work. And you can see the hand of God loosening the grip of Pharaoh. But even through all the power encounters, Pharaoh kept saying no. Until the last moment in Exodus 12 where God says, this is how your freedom is going to happen. I want you to go and take a lamb, each family for itself, kill that lamb, eat the meal, and then take the blood of that lamb and put it on the doorpost of your home. For tonight, the angel of the Lord is going to come and pass over every home. And as it does so, every home that does not have the blood of a lamb on it, that angel will slaughter the firstborn male of every home. Again, what do we do with that reality? Quite a harsh reality. But I can imagine if you put yourself into that story, the Israelite people have seen God start to move in power. They've seen the plagues. And now Moses, who seems to have this direct access to God, says, guys, this is how we're going to be protected. Blood on the doorposts. And if I'm one of those guys listening to Moses, I'm going, Moses, that sounds great. But I just need to make sure, have you heard everything that God has told you to do? Like, is there a prayer we must pray? Must we do a bit of a rain dance on the side? Do I need to subscribe to a newsletter? What do I need to do here? Because the T's and C's, I want to make sure that if I'm going to protect my, my son, I, I can't just leave it up to chance. It seems too simple. Moses says, I saw I got blood on the doorposts. And that night, can you imagine, as the angel of the, the Lord started to pass up the, the valley, going over Egyptian homes, and there's no blood. Ah, scream goes out as child after child is killed. And the Israelite families are holding onto their kids going, oh my goodness, they can feel the, the noise coming up the valley. And it feels like the weight of the judgment of God is coming up the valley. And they're holding on their sons going, please may that blood be enough. Please may it be enough. And the angel comes over their home and then passes over. And in that moment, we see in Genesis 22, one lamb for one man. But in Exodus 12, we see now one lamb is enough for one family. It's an incredible reality. We keep moving on, and we find in Leviticus chapter 16. Can you say Leviticus 16? You guys are doing so well. Losing a bit of steam on the right, but it's fine. We'll keep going. 
Leviticus 16. And now if you want to know how does the book of Leviticus work and be like, how do we work our way through it? Well, here's a big thing. The whole book of Leviticus is like, a, is like a mountaintop. It's going uphill towards Leviticus chapter 16, and that's the pinnacle, and then it's downhill all the way after that. Leviticus 16 is the pinnacle of the whole book because it deals with this day called the Day of Atonement where the high priest would go and this, this people of Israel being set free from Exodus and now this mechanism has been set in place that once a year, the high priest would come and would take a lamb, an unblemished lamb on the day of atonement and they'd sacrifice a lamb and the high priest on behalf of the, the people would go into the Holy of Holies and pour that blood on the mercy seat and they'll come out and it'll be at that moment that they'll be able to come and say, your sins have been atoned for. And for the, their past sins for the year before and the years ahead, the people who are standing outside at a distance would see the lamb go in and they would hear the proclamation that God has forgiven us. And he has an incredible thing. Genesis chapter 22, we have one lamb for one man. Exodus 12, one lamb for one family. Le Leviticus 16, now we're seeing one lamb for one nation. Fast forward all the way to the book of John. And we find the man, John the Baptist, who's baptizing people in the Jordan River. And there's a great furor as people, crowds are crushing in to come and see this man in the wilderness who's proclaiming something powerful. Repent, repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. And as he's baptizing and people are coming, John looks up one day and he sees in the distance his cousin Jesus starting to walk towards the Jordan River. But all of a sudden, as his gaze goes and meets Jesus, all of a sudden I can imagine his gaze, something happens to his eyes because John sees not just his natural cousin, by birth, he sees a lamb that's coming towards him. And all of a sudden, all the pieces of history and of scripture start to line up. And John, with such gusto, looks out and sees Jesus across the crowd and says, Behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. One lamb for one fam man. One lamb for one family. One lamb for one nation. But Jesus steps on the scene and we see there's one lamb for the world. This is the incredible reality. It's the weaved all the way through Scripture. And actually, we, when we understand this reality, in the Jewish culture, in the nation of Israel, um, the lambs that were raised for slaughter, were, uh, for the temple sacrifice, were raised in a little town called Bethlehem. And Bethlehem had a significance. and not, not much going on for it. It didn't really do much in the economic sense of the nation. Except for when it got time for the Day of Atonement once a year, when the people would all come to Jerusalem, the, the shepherds were, this is our time to shine. They would take all their sheep from Bethlehem all the way up to uh, Jerusalem. And those sheep would come, and all the shepherds were hoping that they'll be able to provide the one lamb, the lamb that was blemish-free, spot-free, able the one that would pass all the tests and be used for the sacrifice in the temple. And this, this incredible moment as families would be buying sheep and buying sacrifices, and it's all coming from Bethlehem, but they were looking for the one sheep, and, and people who knew that, oh, maybe got that one. They'll take that lamb and they'll hand it, the one that seemed to make the grade, and they'll say the lamb that was pure would then go to the high priest, to the different priests, and go from house to house and will be examined. No, nope, that one's got a, sp a spot. Sorry. No, no, not that one. Until they'd find the one, they'll get to the high priest and he'll examine it, and they'll select that sheep for the, for the slaughter and for the sacrifice for the people that year. What's incredible is we find there's a man named Jesus Christ who was born in a little town called Bethlehem. And we know that he was born not just to live a life, he's born ultimately to die, the Lamb of God. Not the Bible tells us in the, in the week leading up to uh, Passover, leading up to his crucifixion, that he came when he was betrayed and handed over to his accusers. The Bible tells us that they passed Jesus from house to house, examining him. They passed him from Herod's home to Pilate's home to all the religious leaders, and they looked at him. And they're trying to find fault in him and see what is it, all the accusations coming. Is this, is this true about this man? And it got to the moment in Isaiah 59, there's a prophecy that says, um, 
this incredible reality. God says, God looked to and fro the earth to find the perfect man, but he could find none. Now that phrase, the perfect man, only appears twice in scripture. Once in Isaiah 59, when God says, I cannot find a perfect man. The second time comes from a man named Pilate's lips. When he, examining Jesus, stands up and says, behold, the perfect man, I find no fault in him. The perfect sacrifice was found. And in this moment, when he's provide, presented before the people, the people then, instead of choosing Jesus, they say, give us the other prisoner, Barabbas, give us Barabbas. And the name Barabbas is so incredible. Bar means son of, that's how I get Bartholomew, Bartimaeus, Barabbas, Bar, and Abbas means father. So Barabbas was, means son of the father. But in this moment, he was the guilty son of the father, standing next to the true son of the father. In that moment, we, the, the crowd, just like we do, we said, give us Barabbas. And in that moment, another picture of substitution, as one man got set free and got to step off the altar as the Lamb of God took his place. And what's incredible, it wasn't just for that one man. The crowd yelled out to absolve them of guilt. And they said, don't want, Pilate says, I don't want this to be on my hands. And the crowd says, let his blood fall on us and on our children. And little did they know, they were prophesying right there that his blood would be upon them and our children. And actually not because we deserve it, not because we've earned it, because it's always in him we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins through his blood. And what's incredible as we bring this whole thing into close is on the day of atonement, as Jesus is being crucified and mocked and crown of thorns on his head is led out of the city. The festival of Passover, getting ready for Passover and the, the high holiday was still going on. The lambs were still coming, being sacrificed. And at the temple that day, in, 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 in those days when Jesus was about to be crucified, the lamb was brought to the high priest. And there's a, a system that happened. They'll bring two lambs. The one lamb was called the scapegoat, where the high priest would put his hands on a goat and it would um, um, put all the sins of the, of the nation, of the people, into that, in that goat. And they would drive that scapegoat into the wilderness, out into the Kidron Valley. And that's out as far east of Jerusalem as possible. Send it out there. And, and the incredible thing is they'll take the other lamb, they'll sacrifice that, that blemish lamb, and the high priest would take that blood into the Holy of Holies. And the Holy of Holies on the Temple Mount is as far west in the city as you can go. And it's an incredible moment as that one lamb goes out that way, another lamb goes this way. In the reality of the story, the Talmud tells us that what happened, the, the extra biblical writings telling us about the history of the dam, was that that lamb that would go out the scapegoat taking the sins of the people, somebody would go with it to make sure they would die of natural causes. And what they would do before it would go, they would take a, a white piece of yarn and they would, tie, they would dip it into the blood of the first lamb. They would tie it around the goat's neck and it was dyed scarlet, red. And they would send that, that goat out till somebody would watch it as that goat would die. They would then bring, take the yarn off and bring it back to the high priest. And as they got to back to the high priest, that the high, what would happen uh, by by some reason, some, some way, that yarn, as they looked at it over a couple of course of time, would to go move from red and would go back to white. And the high priest had authority to declare the absolvement of the people of their sins when that scarlet thread turned white. And they would say this phrase, the high priest would say, the, the, the whole ceremony, they'll say these words, it is finished, our sins have been absolved. Here's an incredible thing, as you read the Talmud, we're told that 40 years before the second destruction of the temple, which happened in AD 70, so 40 years before AD 70, which by my maths is plus minus AD 30, which plus minus around the time a man named Jesus Christ died on the cross, it says that this, this, this incredible phenomenon of the scarlet thread turning white stopped happening. 
the Jewish people, the Jewish leaders said that stopped happening. And they had to come up with reasons, environmental factors. Why did this happen? What is happening? But I want to tell you, as somebody who stands on this vantage point, who knows that this is the whole narrative of all creation of all history, that I believe as Jesus on the cross, the high priest of all high priests, declared this, it is finished. I believe in that moment, no other sacrifice would ever be worthy than the lamb that was slain. No other sacrifice would be enough because there's been always been one lamb who was going to be slain. And here's the amazing thing. The Psalms tells us that Jesus removes our sins as far as the east, as that one goat went, as far as the west. He takes our sins and he removes them from us. The, the, the writer tells us, it goes on, says, the high priest of heaven declares that though our sins were scarlet, he has washed them white as snow. And I really believe that tonight, as we put this deep into our hearts, as we come for us as a church, but as individuals, maybe seven years, but I really believe, as Scott said tonight, a new book in our hands. Not, not a new page, but a new book saying, actually, I'm not going in on better principles, trying harder, making up excuses, trying, trying a new habit. No, no, I'm going all in on the power of all powers, the power of all eternity, the thing that heaven has hung its hat on and said, we got nothing else. It's the blood of Jesus. As we go in on that, I'm telling you, we are linking into the power of all of creation. And this is the reality to you and I, I believe in this moment, as we say yes and amen to that, guilty men, guilty women can go free. We can have our sin absolved. We can have, even the Bible says, we can be washed clean of even a guilty conscience. That deep space that nobody else knows about, that shame, that moment, that embarrassment, that thing that happened to us, that betrayal, that thing that will never be resolved fully in our hearts, and that, that, that rejection, that place in that deep spot. The Bible says that he takes the launderer's soap and he gets you that thing that nothing else can get to. No psychologist, no counselor, no moment of community even. Only one thing, the blood of Jesus can get to that place and wash you as white as snow. I want to tell you today, the guilt that's been around your neck Today, you can be set free. That thing that you've carried around in your wilderness and you feel like it'll never, ever be able to be washed clean, Jesus says, today, because of my blood, it changes everything. In him, in him, Christ Jesus, we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins through his blood. Can we stand to our feet, please? I have felt strongly that tonight we're going to, in a sense, it's like the Israelites, we're painting the door frames of our hearts, the door frames of our families, the door frames of our futures with the blood of Jesus. Can I invite you to do that tonight? To say, actually, I am going all in the blood. And you say, is there anything else? If, if you had to bank your future, if you had to bank your salvation on this, you have to bank your, your, your provision on this, bank your freedom on this, bank whatever God has, and you're saying, is that all the blood? Are you sure? Jesus says, yep, that's all it is, the blood. Put the blood there and trust me. As we do that, I believe we're setting up future generations. We'll know not about church, not about religion, not about ideas and ethics, but they'll know, thank you for your cross. Thank you for your blood. And that is enough. Can we lift our hands as a posture to Almighty God? I, I've preached the word. I can't do anything else. But the Spirit of Almighty God can apply the blood of Jesus to every single area of defect, every single area of deformity, every single area of rejection, every single area of brokenness, every single area of pain, every single area of fear, every single area of rejection, anxiety, of trust, deficiencies. He says, I can wash you white as snow. My blood is enough. 
It always has been. It always will be. And it is right now. Father, right now, as hands are lifted to heaven as a community, we say we are a people of the blood. We are unashamed to say we are all in on the Lamb of God. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, but also who takes away the sins of my soul. So I thank you right now. You're freeing us, redeeming us, washing us. And even God, as people who are embarking on new relationships, people who are embarking on new jobs, embarking on trusting you for kids one day, I thank you, Father God. We are saying, God, my future is painted with the blood. Can you just say that with me? I'm going to say, say, it's in the blood. My future is in the blood. My hope is in the blood. My deficiencies is in the blood. My failures is in the blood. My everything is in the blood. Thank you, Father. As hands are lifted, I say once more, in Christ Jesus, we have redemption the forgiveness of sins through your blood. I thank you for this promise. In Jesus' name, amen, amen. What an amazing, amazing word. If you would like to find out about what's happening in the life of the church, why don't you follow us on our social media, Instagram or Facebook, or you can go into our website, lifechanges.org.za. Thank you so much for watching that video. Be blessed.